Welcome, welcome. You're listening to our podcast, Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. My name is Mark. I'm a registered massage therapist, registered kinesiologist here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And we have a really special guest on today. His name is Walt Fritz. If you know anything about massage therapy education, PT education, education for occupational therapists, for speech pathologists, you know who this man is. He's hanging out right now in his place in Rochester. I'm hanging out in my office in Toronto. We're doing a Facebook Live. I'm going to take the audio out of this bad boy and uh, throw it into a podcast for you. Walt, my man, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. I'm waiting for this freezing rain to hit us that's coming to yeah, you right we've, now. Yeah, we've got it pond, pretty right? bad right now. My kids are home from school. Kind of happy I'm out of the, uh, out of the house. <laughs> To be honest, (laughs) I I take that back. I'm kidding. I love my children. They're awesome people. So you've been a physical therapist since 1985. You've been practicing myofascial release since 1992. Um, You've developed a group of seminars. So the foundation of myofascial release seminars for neck, voice, and swallowing disorders. Sounds sounds like you do a lot of stuff, my man. And you still have an ongoing practice as well, right? I do. Yep. I, um, I see patients two to three days a week here in Rochester. And now my traveling is kind of, it's becoming that, that multi-headed uh, monster that I've been looking for all this time in terms of a lot of classes around certainly United States where I'm based, but also Canada and, and beyond. I'm heading to Taiwan next week to teach a group of uh, speech pathologists and physical therapists some work over there. And yeah, it's, it's kind of gotten into a, a, a good I life. I know. I'm enjoying life immensely. So to, to kind of make one little, yep. little tweak to what you said earlier, um, I don't just teach the neck voice and swallowing disorders class i also teach an upper body class and a lower body class all of them framed in a mild fascia release style of engagement and i would love to talk about yeah, that a little bit as we move on here versus the traditional mild yeah i definitely release, want to uh, hit on that and, and i love the travel that you're doing I, I follow you on social media and you've got this whole uh physiotherapy rockstar thing going on i see oh, the I travel that, i see, yeah, I see yeah, the leg room yeah. sometimes they're on the plane sometimes not it's kind of cool it makes me chuckle <laughs> yeah once in a while i luck out and get upgraded and, and get to gloat about that a little bit on social media but otherwise i'm crammed so like give us else. a little bit of the backstory <laughs> tell us tell us uh, tell us about you i mean a big part of what we do at two massage therapists in a microphone is finding out the people behind the cool stuff that they do yeah yeah well um first of all it it comes with support of my lovely wife and that's not something that I have to feel obligated to add but without um, that support I wouldn't be doing this what's turned into sort of this worldwide gig that I'm just enjoying the hell out of right now and uh, um, so I, I thank her for that but I I started a traditional physical therapy practice or root kind of in 1985 when I graduated from University of Buffalo started mafash release training um well informally back in the late 80s doing like some dinosaur version of satellite training where you sat in a room where they beamed in the satellite signal onto a tv and and watched a a, a sort of an interactive Mm -hmm. sort of seminar back then and um but officially started my training back in 1992 trained with one of the bigger names in the um, mfr community at least in the united states john barnes um, worked for him for 10 years helping out at his seminars and then kind of, you know, hit a hit a point in the road where it was time to move on for a lot of different reasons. Um, and after moving on from that very traditional MFR model that people, I think most people still kind of follow and believe the thought that somehow we're singularly and selectively targeting mm-hmm. issues within the fascia to the exclusion of other tissues and somehow elevating fascia to this um, position of of significance over and above everything else 
which, you know, is sort of, if you get rid of the word fashion, it's sort of the way massage therapists and other therapists kind of view their target tissue, whether it's muscle or trigger point or whatever. Everybody's sort mm-hmm. of trained in this rabbit hole of it's all about your tissue or it's all about your, your pathology or in the case of some things like fascial restrictions, metaphoric pathologies that don't truly exist, but we're taught that they do and we're taught to feel for them and look for them and all this stuff. And um, I, I, I don't want to say I bought into it because it was more than that. I believed it. I, I worked in that perspective. Um, but then I got the, the crap slapped out of me on an online forum back in 2005. Uh, the crap, excuse mm-hmm. me, the crap slapped out of me um, in a soma simple, soma simple.com where we had a quote unquote argument discussion um, about malfashionate, about fascia, about the things we thought we did. And, um, you know, if you, if anybody's interested in seeing my my slapping history, it's there for everybody to see. A little bit to my embarrassment, a little bit to my pride on somasimple.com. It's called My Fashionable mm-hmm. Great Conversation. It's when I went up against some people who knew a lot, first of all, probably a lot more than I did, but also a broader sense of what happens in the so, body. So in that, in that, um, in that slapping, just, tell me what your, what was your position at yeah. that time? And what were you going up against? My position was I was still working for John Barnes. I was still, um, I, I kind of viewed myself as the defender of that tribe, if you will, going on this website to defend my beliefs from people who, who were kind of what I thought was degrading it. They called it a deconstruction. Um, I took it personally, um, got defensive, which is never a good position to take in an argument, especially in um, one where critical thinking and critical reasoning should be foremost and not, you know, emotions. I certainly mm-hmm. got caught up in that emotions, um, emotional content of defending myself and my my mentor and peers. It it basically was months of our um, discussion that um, caused me to get kicked off the website frequently for bad behavior. And then they'd let me back on with promises of good behavior that I could never really, really keep. Um, eventually, the thread died out and was closed. And um, it became sort of a, a benchmark for me, though, to it initially look back with a little bit of resentment. But then as I transitioned away from that model that I learned that I that was my home for 15 years and into viewing manual therapy, viewing myofascial release from other narratives, from other ways that people can explain it from the skin to the neurology to the behavior, kind of including all of those things, plus maybe the fascial approach that I learned. I went back and I started actually reading all the stuff that people gave to me on Soma Simple and um, there were a few people who were still willing to have mm-hmm. a discussion with me offline and help me transition as they call it crossing the chasm from um, believing it's all about the tissue that we somehow think we can impact to it's the person on the table who we're having a conversation with and a discussion with and and manual therapy is part of that discussion but it probably might not be doing those tissue specific Mm -hmm. things that we think and that was that was huge for me i owe a great deal of respect historically to you know how i got there in terms of um, the craniosacral, the myofascial release, the, all the other stuff, the McKenzie approach, all that other good stuff I learned early on in my PT career and gave me hands-on abilities, hands-on skills, which I, I cherish. And I still thank everybody for that. But it was this new group of comrades, if you will, who sort of taught me to think um, in the way that university was supposed to with critical thinking versus basically accepting what people told me because we mm-hmm. had these miraculous outcomes. It was hard. It's hard for a lot of therapists who who hear me talk or hear some of these other people talk on social media because 
they're often viewed as simply, um, you know, negative, saying that massage and manual therapy don't work. And that's not what's being said at all. They're simply questioning right. what we think is happening. And that is often taken um, in a defensive posture. So um, I'm, I think I'm fairly visible and fairly audible on social media trying to um, chime in with some of those. It's not about making you feel like you don't know anything or that your work is ineffective. It's just asking you maybe to step back from, from the rabbit hole that you were trained in and look around and see what other people are saying. Does it make sense from the medical community and the scientific community? That's really what I'm trying to bring forward in mm-hmm. you know, the classes I teach right now. And what I love about, I guess, being a PT in this world that was initially one of more massage therapists, right? The mouth release was that pretty popular amongst massage therapists. PTs were a, a smaller part of it, but... I now get a chance to have conversations with massage therapists, with PTs, OTs, speech pathologists, kinesiologists, trainers, but also some really interesting other professions, including mm-hmm. vocal coaches. I get I get MDs and ENTs coming to the seminars for information and ideas on what's possible with that niche that I'm now addressing with some of my classes, a lot of my classes, and that's voice, neck voice and swallowing disorders. But I think what's fun about that particular class, and I'm certainly kind of pushing that one because it's become my 90% workshop, um, is is the cross-disciplinary approach that you can learn from looking at manual therapy from a scientific perspective, from a plausible narrative perspective. But also what I think is the missing piece with a lot of manual therapy, um, it's ignoring the third part of evidence-based practice. And I, I can't speak for Ontario RMTs in terms of the expectation of your education and your licensure. Are you expected to work with yes, an evidence-based um, model? It's kind of, a, yeah. Yeah, which, you know, if you look at the classic definition, it's either a triangle with three equal sides or it's three circles that are equally mm-hmm. weighted, one with the evidence, right? This, that what's been published, what's been proven. Um, a second circle being the therapist um, experience applying that evidence. And then there's a third circle, and that's patient preference, patient feedback. And in, I'm going to speak for the physical therapy profession in my country, that circle is often diminished, the, the patient preference. And it's all, there, there's this, this informal reweighting of those circles of the sides of a triangle to make the evidence, the, the preponderance of what drives an interaction, right? When right now, the way you and I are expected to work is from an equal weighting of those. Yes, we need to say that there's evidence to support the work we do. And my experience applying that is important, but a third of this should come from what the patient feels, what the patient finds important, what the patient's preferences are. And I personally think that's the one thing that our manual therapy training diminishes so much. It's almost like over time, the more seminars you and I take, somehow we become the experienced um, voice of reason in all this, that, that that overpowers the patient's perspective. And they come to us for that experience. They come to us for that education and training and that niche of experience, which ends up being, I think, and I get kind of um, busted on this for saying this, but I think it becomes more of an Mm -hmm. ego-based approach where we let our ego take over based on all this experience and training we had instead of realizing that no matter how much I know, I can't know what my patient is feeling until I ask them, until I ask them to be a full participant in this process. And I think that that it really does call upon educators in the massage and the manual therapy community to sort of take a look at that evidence-based model and ask, am I really giving equal weight to those three circles or those three sides of a of a triangle? 
And I know in my MFR and my cranial sacral and all the other trainings that I've done, it ends up being more about that word intuition that 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 the therapist seems to apply based on experience and it becomes more about i think their ego even though uh, a lot of people strongly disagree with me and i'm willing to 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 have it out on social media about that too because ego is taken as somehow negative but yet um uh-huh. ego is who we are can we let that ego piece of our training be equal with what you, my patient on the table, is feeling and what you're experiencing and whether you think what I'm doing might be helpful, which is a bizarre question to ask a patient. But I include it in everything that I do from evaluation right into treatment and whether it's, you know, doing myofascial release type of engagement for low back pain or voice disorders or swallowing issues or headaches mm-hmm. or foot pain, right? And I, that's really been become who I'm about, about the patient-centered model. And, um, you know, that, that's, I think that's what's given me some of the place I am in the, in the manual therapy so when, right now. I, I routinely get questioned, why do I call what I do and what I teach myofascial release, even though I don't believe it's about the fascia? I no longer believe it is about the fascia, at least in isolation. Um, I call what I do myofascial release because I'm doing what I was taught to do with my hands starting 27 years ago. I'm still doing the historical piece that people call one version of myofascial release. If you looked at me from across the room, you'd say he's doing MFR, right? Or at least one version of MFR. But if you start listening to the story that I tell and and the communication I have with my patient, it doesn't resemble MFR from that perspective. But it's the historical nod, really, to what myofascial release looks like, how we engage a patient. Mm-hmm. It's dry. It's static. And that, to me, what MFR is, not necessarily um, that historical story about affecting just the right fascia. I, I, that's kind of where I was going to ask you about this. I was going to ask you about that, that change that you've had. And then how does that look in your practice? How does that go from, you know, traditionally what you're doing before to what you're doing now? And how does that affect your practice? Um, well, it affects my practice. First of all, it doesn't affect it in, in the fact that what I often do with, with my hands and myself during a, during a session, that probably hasn't mm-hmm. changed dramatically. Um, what's, what's changed dramatically is Based on a lot of the, you know, the, the social media type of, of coverage, especially in, in, in you know, just the, the common news that people get across their screen, et cetera, um, people are more aware about fascia, which I suppose if I was still tr- practicing as traditional MFR would be a really good thing. In some ways, I, I, when a patient comes in all hepped up because they're coming to see an MFR therapist and they read all this stuff down a news rabbit hole about, MF, about MFR and about fascia, um, I've learned, first of all, not to discount what they believe or what they've learned, but um, I sometimes have to sort of step them away from the cliff a little bit. And we talk about some of the things that I just talked about with you that, sure, it could be your connective tissue that somehow got um, damaged or scarred or, or bound down, et cetera. But I also include some other plausible narratives, you know, that mm-hmm. the neurodynamic approach, the skin approach, um, the behavior approach, a lot of different concepts that, yep. It could be fascia, but it could be a lot of other things. But just like I teach people when I when I t- teach this work, I give them a couple plausible stories. But then I turn the mirror around. Instead of making it about me telling you what's wrong with you, I turn it around and say, but, you know, what do you think? What are you feeling right now as I do this thing to your body, as I touch your skin? Um, does what I feel 
feel familiar to you? Does it feel relevant to you? And most importantly, mm -hmm. does it feel like it might be helpful or does it feel like it might be harmful versus me trying to sell you on what's wrong with you? I turn it around and make this a partnership, a negotiated partnership about how my treatment feels to you and whether you right. think it would be helpful or not. Um, how is it affected? Yeah, because I was wondering, like, like how do patients um, and clients respond know, still... to this approach versus what they were probably expecting to have? Yeah. So here's one thing that I found, and this is part of, I think, being a humble or at least trying to be humble human being is I'm willing to tell them that the more I've learned, the less mm -hmm. I realize I fully know. The more I learn about um, manual therapy, the more I learn about anatomy, physiology, et cetera. The, the more that I doubt what I used to think was true, okay? Because I used to believe that everything was about the fascia, and I could tell a darn good story about um, how the fascia gets bound down and how we sometimes selectively or can go in there and actually treat the fascia. But now I actually tell people that that the more I've learned, the more, the more I question that piece mm -hmm. of what I used to see as true. And I, I, I suppose there's a small segment of the people who come to me who leave saying, this guy's not certain about what he knows, about what's wrong with me. But it's shocking to me, the people who really just sort of nod and say, you know, um, I've heard so many different things from so many different therapists. I kind of started questioning, can all of those things be true? And, you know, it's like, maybe they're all true. Maybe none of them are true. Or maybe there's truths in everything and everything mm -hmm. we believe and everything we've been taught. Um, I think it's, it's, I think in some ways it's raised my credibility, even though I sound like I know less. Um, I have to, I have to, you know, prove to people I really know what I'm talking about. And that's through the various narratives that we can use to explain the work. But I've, I've stepped away from saying it's all about the fascial restriction or the way other people might think it's all about the, the trigger point. Or it's all about the facilitating segment or, I mean, fill in the blank with the dozens of things that you and I are exposed to. That's what's wrong with people, what brings people to our clinic that, that our training and our education and our rabbit hole sort of thought process says, no, it's all about this, this thing mm -hmm. that we think it is. When in reality, the only thing we can be certain of is that we're touching a person usually on their skin. Can you build a model of explanation based solely on, on the skin as some people believe we, we can, or at least without having to dig so darn deep into the person that we somehow forget about all the right, stuff we right. had to go through to get there, right? You and I might talk about, I was taught, oh yeah, treat the psoas. We can't touch the psoas. You might be able to make the muscle contract and feel that it popped up, but it's under layers and layers and inches and inches yep. of humanness, right? Of of skin, of neurology, of all the other stuff that's there. Is there something in that package between you and the psoas that could be driving mm -hmm. all or part of these changes, right? And that's the to me the exciting piece about this. Some people say, no, it's all about you're you're a naysayer, right? And I don't necessarily believe that. I think it's about being being really practical and plausible about the way you look at at the human body and the science mm -hmm. that does I think support it. I think one of the bigger one of the biggest points of resistance and maybe I'm completely wrong I've no idea I feel like what I feel no, like I love one the, of the resistance, biggest points of resistance yeah. is that like you said it best like if you if you if I take a look from across the room your hands are doing what we think they should be doing your hands are doing what what we were taught right. they were doing it's 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 the approach it's the methodology it's the logic behind what you're doing and I think a big part of the resistance is someone that's not exposed right to you know this thought process is thinking well what are you doing so different that i'm not doing well um 
the vast majority. Okay, so if I brought in one of my my colleagues from the MFR world, who's you know still in that world that I was, um, if you know we did a side by side comparison, Mark, you could look at us and say, you know what, you're probably right. not doing much differently. I I would say there's one massive difference, one massive difference, and that. Um, Mafash release and a lot of manual therapists are sort of taught mm-hmm. to stay really quiet, right? To allow the person, I'm, I'm not going to definitely, you know, address the relaxation massage because it's a whole different piece. But in, in the therapeutic narrative of Mafash release, it's often about staying quiet so the person can process, right? Of what comes up, of what emotional past holding patterns might come up and possibly epiphanies of mm-hmm. why they're like they are. Um, um, personally, I think so, a lot of that is coercive thinking that we implant with our patients before they even arrive on our table that somehow they're supposed to come up with emotional holding patterns that, um, and if they don't, they're simply holding back and not ready to go there, right? So um, uh, that's my little editorial comment right there. But the, in terms of how, the, if you're doing that side by side with a, with a past colleague and me, they might be staying really quiet, whereas me, I'm mm-hmm. asking questions. Um m- I'm actually demanding feedback. I need to know what you're feeling. I need to know that it feels safe. I need to know that it feels familiar, that I'm replicating an aspect of why you walked in the store versus me being the expert mm-hmm. that can figure out what's wrong with you, right? So I think that's one massive difference is there's going to be um, a conversation. And I hate to use the word dialogue because in MFR and cranial sacral, that often is code words for certain things about, you know, dialoguing into the emotional past. And I don't believe that that's my role as a physical therapist in my scope of practice. But the dialogue of asking, Mark, what are you feeling as I put pressure into this area? Um, does it feel good or bad, helpful or not helpful? Um, is pressure within, well within your tolerance? Does it feel like it mm-hmm. might be helpful, right? So that's a massive difference. Um, you know, if you did, if you take that out of the equation, I guess there probably are differences that I've moved away from some of the school that I was taught in terms of MFR. I use a lot more um, single hand pressure versus the thought that I somehow have to drag both ends of the fascia to fully release it. Um, but I found that once I get rid of some of those thought patterns in my brain, a lot of other ways can be helpful for the patient than how I was taught, which is part of just mm-hmm. learning, right, as we grow. Um, but is is it that different? Um, the story is, is vastly different. And some people really don't like the story because I don't honor all the history of the of the work from, you know, the person I learned it from, as well as the, all the other schools of, of myofascial and myofascial related modalities. You know, they're all kind of coming from that story of how the fascia gets bound down, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't, I just don't believe that that's a total answer mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. what's happening on our table. So tell me, tell, tell me about this course then, because it seems super, super interesting. Oh, well, um, we, we, before we went on the air, we talked about the class I'm teaching in Toronto based yeah. because you're sitting in Toronto right now, Mark. Um, yeah, you know, I, I teach, as I said, three primary and one advanced classes, um, based solely on numbers, my 90% class is the mouthwash release from neck poison swallowing disorders, which is, I think it's a blast. I think it's, I think it's so much fun getting a room full of people of a huge range of training and education and backgrounds. Yep, a primary speech pathologist, speech therapist um, population um, taking the class, but I also get, like I said, vocal coaches. I get a lot of massage therapists, some who are moving into a pretty cool niche that I had never really heard mm-hmm. of, a vocal massage, which that that was interesting to me, right? Some are using um, 
the traditional narrative of massage, right, using a, a lubricant, lotion, or oil, as well as a movement-based massage work in terms of, of working with the neck and, and the diaphragm region, et cetera, to help the what a colleague of mine calls the vocal athlete, which is kind of a cool sure, concept, yeah. the vocal athlete, right? We don't think of athletics as it comes to vocals, but the vocal performer, whether it's a speaker or singer, certainly qualifies as an athlete in certain uh, you know definitions. But working with that population moving them from problematic, right, from a dysfunction piece to back to normal, which is what you and I mostly do with our patients, right? We're working with someone with a quote-unquote problem, trying to get them back to to, to that baseline normal lifetime or uh, life place. But there's also the people who are working with the athletic population, whether it's a runner or a singer, trying to improve on what's there. And a lot of, of of um, therapists, massage therapists and other therapists are applying this narrative with that vocal mm-hmm. athlete population but we also deal a lot with with um with breath issues with um swallowing issues post-radiation head neck cancer issues a really wide range of things that i think that it's not just for the speech pathologist that a lot of us right the pt the ot the massage therapist and others can find a place within that population i think the interesting part about my workshops is if you came to all three of them the first two hours may not differ dramatically from one class to another, which some would say, well, gee, that's pretty boring. Um, but yet we're, we're, we're applying what's out there in terms of the evidence, the evidence to support um, neurological approaches, et cetera. I sort of build this, this, um, this pyramid, if you will, of hopefully a sound scientific grounding for explaining the work that we do. And then, you know, obviously in the neck voice and swallowing class, we're, we're moving into different areas of the body maybe different interests than we are with my lower body workshop or my upper body workshop. But, um, yeah, the class in Toronto is, uh, uh I got to look at my yep. paper here, May 17th, 18th of this year. Um, but I, my website, walfritz.com, I I've got classes now. Um, well, I've got another one in Canada. If you've got other Canadian um, therapists listening, we're doing one out in Alberta in, next year. Um, but all over the states, um, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, um, Taiwan next week, Macau next year, and a couple other international adventures on the uh, sort of the planning boards right now. Right on. What's the, what's the turnout like at these? How many participants normally do you have in your your workshop seminars? You know, the neck brace and swallowing. I'm going to stick with that one because it's my by far my most popular. I just taught um, two classes within the past two weeks, and we had about 42 people in each class, which. Um, some people say, well, gee, that's a really big class. And other people say, oh, that's really small. It mm-hmm. depends on who you're training with and where you're coming from, right? Um, I, I believe strongly in having, um, adequate hands-on support for which that's what we're there for, right? We're, we're there to learn right. hands-on intervention. I, I keep a really high number of teaching assistants that I bring in from, oh, who've trained with me in the past. We try to keep to, um, usually about 12 to 1, 14 to 1 mm-hmm. in terms of the ratios. So, um, you know, as as my numbers have grown, um, and they have, I also make sure that I'm providing, you know, you, the the, the person taking the seminar with a, hopefully what I, is a quality, not just a quality educational experience, but a quality hands-on, hands-on experience with having a good level of supervision mm-hmm. of trained people there. So they've grown what what were what were your classes like when you first started and was there ever was was there ever a point oh, in man, which you're like fr- what the yeah. hell am i doing here I, I don't know if i can i don't know if this is going to be sustainable for me did you ever did you ever get to that to that that point oh absolutely absolutely you know my my first couple of classes you'd have you know five people sitting in the room and and 
uh, it was really hard because part of me said, no, a lot of me said these people are number one, paying me their money, but investing their interest in what I have to say, which got me past that, you know, I'm kind mm-hmm. of just breaking even on this sucker, right? Wanting to give that person, whether it's, you know, a, a crowd of five or a crowd of 45 or whatever that might be. I mean, we did some stuff at, in, in Burlington last year where we had 100 people in the room at the Canadian Massage Festival or conference. And, uh, um, you know, those can, can get out of control, but some right. people love that large energy. But yeah, in the beginning, the smaller groups were, you know, your ego <laughs> takes a little bit of a bruise thinking, why don't I, why am I not attracting people? Right. But it takes a while to develop who you are, why people would even care about coming, not just to pay money to, to be with you, but willing to devote a weekend to being with you. What do you, what do you got to give me? What do you got? Mm-hmm. Not just what do you got to sell me, but what have you got to share that, that could be of value? And, and I think that was part of my, um, process of development too it's like what do i have to offer you um what without just it be being about selling you something like is there something that i can really add to this value historically of, of mouthwashing some manual therapy etc to um to sort of um you know advance the bar ahead a little bit and i think that um i think over time i have and i think that really that's why um you know the the turnouts are are what they are i i don't want to be that Oh, I get 200 people at every workshop I teach. I think that's something which ends up being just a financial funnel. And, um, you know, but yet that's how some people work. And, and, you know, I learned under that model. Right. It, it obviously works for some people, but I don't think it's the, it's the most best way to, to truly, um, get some really good one-on-one, um, interaction to mm-hmm. learn some hands. You're, you're a well thought out man. I like it. Very self-aware. I'm really curious though. What, what made you want to get into PT in the first place? Like, how did that come about? Um, yeah, so I started out in engineering. Um, I started out as an engineer pre-major, um, got kicked out of college after one year for, um, uh, for basically, um, <laughs> not doing anything. Uh, that's a good rude awakening. Um, so being booted out of college for, um, Poor grades and lack of interest. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Let's let's go um, back to the poor grades up. and not yeah, yeah. doing anything. Yeah, what were you doing when you should have been in class, head in the books? What was Walt Fritz actually doing? Um, you know, probably <laughs> um, um, head in a pillow from having my head in the bar too long the, the night before. And uh, you know, it's a long time yeah. ago. It's another lifetime ago. And um, you know, that'll that'll be in the novel that follows probably, but. Um, no, it was just not being mature enough to uh, to be ready for college. It was also at the unfortunate time when I'm um, the drinking age in New York State. Yeah. I was still 18, so uh, um, you know it, it, it's just who I was, and you know I'm, I'm honest about that. It's not that I, I uh, you know, it was a problem. It was a problem in that I, I didn't care enough about college. I think I also wasn't mature enough, and I didn't mm-hmm. care enough about engineering. So. Um, you know, it took a year to get that all sorted out and, and, and pleaded to get back in the university of Buffalo and they agreed to give me a chance. And, um, you know, it, it was a little bit of sourcing, looking at some other degree options. What do I want to do now that I, I don't want to do what I was doing during that year off, um, which was fixing bicycles. Um, um, but, um, yeah, it, it took me a couple tries at a couple different programs till I, I, I hit on physical therapy back in the, in the early eighties. PT was a real hot profession and it is still to a certain extent. Right. It was one of those top 10 professions that would show up on people's bullet lists. And, um, no, it's been, it's been a great career for me. I started out traditional physical therapy doing general hospital work. I've done early intervention, right? Working with kids, birth to five. I've worked with school age kids, 
spent a lot of time in developmental disabilities, which is still one of my loves, as well as um, home care. It was during home care where I really kind of started mm-hmm. most of this training. But that's that's how I got into PT. Um, for the longest time with myofascial release, I kind of moved totally away from that um, that exercise, that strengthening piece that is so um, ingrained in the physical therapy profession, viewing somehow what I learned as it's not about the the weakness, it's about the tightness, right? And um, I, I've moved back into the, you know, allowed the pendulum to sort of drop in the middle once it slows down. And it's not about just the manual therapy. It's not just about that weakness model, but it's about getting mm-hmm. somebody so they can move, right? So they can move with less pain, with greater ease. And whether it's moving in terms of walking or running or movement in terms of singing and swallowing, um, what can we do to foster that you and I, right? We can do, we do the thing that we do with our hands, um, and depending on your scope of practice, you can also talk about movement. Exercise is one form of movement. Strengthening is the way that PTs and trainers dose movement, right? You've got to dose it sometime, but somehow. And, um, but, you know, the, the, the whole you're weak, that's why you're having pain is probably as bad of an explanation as saying you're fascist right. tight, that's why you're having pain. All of them are incomplete, right? To me, my goal is to get you moving in a way where you can enjoy life and maybe challenge yourself in further ways. So you know, my practice has moved maybe a little bit more into that. Let's talk about movement. It could be strengthening, but it could be simply um, challenge yourself with, okay, if you want right. to dance and dance more. Right. Um, and I think that's what we're all in the, the so. neck voice and swallowing where and why, how did you make this your thing? Uh, like there's gotta be something here. And I want to know what that yeah. something is. Um, well, back in the in um, the two thousands, right, the aught years, um, I being known in Rochester as a guy who did myofascial release, I got referrals from some therapists, including speech pathologists, who might have done myofascial release training or myofascial release training, but didn't feel um, skilled enough to really tackle that with their patients. And getting referrals from speech pathologists in the Rochester area sort of kind of tuned me into some of the some of the disorders they might be dealing with some of the issues of swallowing and vocal dysfunction so I started getting referrals there and some of this is a little hazy because I can't really remember the exact chain of events but I ended up getting an email from a, um, a speech pathologist in Chicago back in 2012 who was putting together um, hoping to put together a one-of workshop in 2013 for speech pathologists mm-hmm. on myofascial release and complementary therapies for for the speech pathologist. So she brought me in as well as a an ENT from New York City by the name of Benjamin Asher, who um, has written quite a bit on on, on fascial release, more trigger point based approach for voice swap voice issues. So um, he and I got together. We um, we met the night before the class and realized that we need to do some dancing because neither one of us taught from the same perspective. So we taught a two-day workshop to about 50 speech pathologists in Chicago that went over fairly well. It was pretty crude in terms of my readiness for that um, group of professionals, the questions they ask, the patients mm-hmm. they see, and the training they have. But um, after 2013, um, you know, using some mentorship from the speech pathology community, I just sort of got more and more interested in addressing what I thought saw as an unfulfilled need within that community of, of allowing um, a, a manual therapy approach for some things that, that speech pathologists traditionally don't. There are people teaching myofascial release and other manual circumlaryngeal work, 
for speech pathologists, but it's a small fragment of the education continuing available for speech path versus a you know massage therapist or PT, whereas you know we're sort of inundated with various yeah. manual therapy modalities to the point where it's hard to figure out what do you want to do. So over since 2013, that's just become um, it's especially over the past couple of years my my real strong interest um, and. It's it's driven my career into a place I never envisioned it five years ago. And like I said earlier, I'm just enjoying the heck out of the challenge and the ability to kind of reach mm -hmm. people. Big, what's the biggest way. challenge with it now? Now that you've gotten this to to this comfortable place where you're at, what's the what's a big challenge you have? Yeah, and that's a good question. I think the biggest ongoing challenge is to continue to build on the evidence base that um that I use and that I can use to explain the work that I both do and teach. Um, and from people who mm -hmm. are demanding evidence, which is really an interesting conversation. Number one, I, I could do a whole podcast on sort of the limitations of evidence, um, right? Even though we have evidence to support what we do, what does the evidence really show? And yeah, let me sure. just segue for just a minute here, Mark, into that. If you open a manu manual therapy paper, whether it's massage or myofascial release, right, um, that shows that, let me just pick something. There's a, a paper with myofascial release says that it, it was more helpful for tennis elbow than traditional PT modality, yep. whatever, you know, I'm just making this up, right? Um, and and you, you so, you, you know, you either buy or you get access to the full text paper. You open up that paper and you, you, you sort of look into it. You look into the to the background part. How do they explain myofascial release and its role in all this? And how do they explain fascial restrictions with the role of lateral epicondylitis? Um, and having read enough papers, have been around the, the dog and pony show long enough of myofascial release, I recognize the words that people use when, yep. they, when they publish a paper. And they're basically rehashed words that never were really um, vetted. Fully vetted is, does fascia really do what they think it's done? And can we really affect it the way they think we can affect it? But somehow that slips under the radar of the people who do peer review on the article saying, well, it was published in the past, so we'll accept it as, as explanation mm -hmm. for this MFR paper. But then the even more challenging part, Mark, is when I open up the paper and I say, well, what did they do? What did they do to that person? And they'll say something like, well, we applied five minutes of stretch to the elbow. Oh, okay, that sort of fits in the narrative yeah. that I was taught. But what did they do? There's no pictures. There's no videos. There's no you know graphic def description of what they did with their hands. And to me, that's problematic because mm -hmm. what are you really proving? Maybe you're simply proving that the, the person did something that they were taught as myofascial release, but rolfing is by some considered myofascial release, which is a lot deeper yep. and aggressive. It's quicker strokes. Um, trigger point work to some people is considered myofascial release. There's other people who think almost an energy-based approach is myofascial release. It's all over the board. There's no brand or definition, which which is exceedingly problematic. So, yep, there's evidence out there, and I've got a website full of of, of references, both both older ones as newer ones, saying that myofascial release is effective. But it's like you know, question the source every single time. You're not being mm -hmm. disrespectful, like some people think here, by questioning what's being said and and told and taught. It's simply being um, applying the concept of critical thinking. Which at times is I feel, I feel a lot of the time it's so lagging. adding, especially in the massage yeah, therapy community. Yeah. I'm not you gonna know, lie. I feel like uh, I feel like a lot of massage therapists are just lacking that skill of critical thinking. Yeah, uh, you know, it it comes through. It does come through education, but it all comes. It also comes through the colleagues that you choose mm -hmm. after you're done. Right? Are they questioning things? Are they simply 
Um, I love the rabbit hole analogy. Are they simply happy rabbits at the bottom of the rabbit hole, um, echoing what each other says over and over? And to me, man, that's the way MFR was for me. It was all a bunch of rabbits nodding at each other with, yeah, it's all about the fashion, the emotions Mm -hmm. um, that are stuck in there. And that's not critical thinking, right? Um, So having... Um, you know, kind of ripped the bandaid off that for myself, uh, 15, it's almost 15 years ago now. No, it's about 12, whatever it is. Um, and just simply saying, can I stand here and really defend what I'm saying, um, in the mm-hmm. face of people who know different? Um, and that's probably one of the, the biggest challenges. And actually it's probably the one nice. that I enjoy. I most. like it. I like it. So we're, we're, I'm going to give you the, yeah, the yeah. standard, uh, interview question where do you see yourself in five years what do you want to be doing what do you want to be doing down the road um i think probably in five years um i might be doing even less patient care not that i i want to give that up um i always want to keep my hand in that to a certain point but i can see that as coming and um i think just um maturing this um the story that i'm telling allowing that to to mature into a place where it's even more credible. I see myself continuing to teach. Um, I, you know, I'm, I just turned 59. Am I ready to, to pack it up in retirement? No, life is just getting to be a lot of fun. And um, five years from now, I think it's going to be, um, you're going to be seeing me doing a similar thing to what I'm doing now. Um, hopefully, maybe reaching your listeners um, at one of my seminars. I mean, there's my sales. Speech, <laughs> I don't get too strong about that. Um, but yeah, I, I I really want to keep doing what I'm doing um, because I think number one, I'm enjoying myself, mm-hmm. which is what life should be about. But number two, I think I think there's you know there's there's value. I right really on. do in what I've in what I, I definitely offer. see yeah. it. And I I wanted that's why I really wanted you on. I wanted to introduce a lot of therapists who might not realize what you've got going on, who might not realize the value in the stuff that you say and the things that you instruct. And we do have a lot of listeners who are like brand new graduates, we're starting off in the field, and I don't want them to wait, you know, until they're eight years in to figure out, hey, Walt Fritz is saying some really cool things. I want I want them to get that right off the bat. Yeah, I think one thing that puts people off a little bit, especially based on the hierarchical type of learning that we're often exposed to in continuing that is, you know, somebody will go to my website and say, well, geez, mm-hmm. you don't have a lot of seminars. You know, why not? Why don't you offer all these multi-tiered seminars? And, you know, I can't say that they're not of value. That's kind of how I was brought up in mouth hashimoto's and cranial sacral and a lot of my earlier stuff is that that tiered type of learning, which is useful. but you know, you, you graduate and whether it's from massage school or PT school or whatever kind of school with pretty darn good education, I shouldn't have to, um, you know, retrain Mm -hmm. the science that you learn. Let's just sprinkle in, let's sprinkle in some ways to apply that, that knowledge instead of selling you on this, you know, um, again, this multi-tiered type of a, of an approach, but yet some people want that. And it's, and it's great work. I know a lot of great educators out there who are offering multi-tiered approaches and I respect what they're doing. Um, I think if you decide to come and train with me, um, you may not get that, you know, here's, here's 10 years of commitment in terms of learning for you, but hopefully um, maybe an alternative way to view the interaction that happens on the table. Um, I think that the biopsychosocial approach is so much uh, it's in vogue is the wrong word because it makes it sound like a fad but it's really a necessary aspect of what we do and honoring that 
that patient perspective on the table, I think, is really honoring a, a really huge piece of the biopsychosocial approach. So, um, yeah, that's why I think I might be able to offer your listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, um, t- tell me what you what your thoughts are on placebo. Um, so, you know, Brian Fulton, one of your um, you know, nearby mates there in, in Hamilton, wrote the book, The Placebo mm-hmm. Effect in Manual Therapy. Um, which is, I think, a really important book for all of us to read and to digest a little bit because 10, 15 years ago, if you had said to me, Mark, that a fair amount of your treatment outcomes are, are probably placebo-based, I would have said mm-hmm. the equivalent of them fighting words, right? That somehow by telling me that what happens in my room is placebo, that somehow it was an insult to my education and training and experience and all those things. But um, the more I understand um, about placebo through Brian's book, through through meeting with Brian in person a couple of times, as well as a lot of other smart people, it's an aspect of everything we do in human life, not just in the in the therapeutic environment. And instead of viewing it as an insult, just see what it that the information has to say about about placebo, as well mm-hmm. as its evil twin, the nocebo. Right? Most people discount the nocebo effect. Um, and in reality, we're probably committing it daily with our patients. So, um, you know, I think educating yourself and whether it's through, you know, here's a plug for Brian's book, whether it's buying Brian's book or just learning more about placebo and nocebo and how it potentially can and is interacting our engagements with a patient. It's just adding to the wealth of, of knowledge that we have. And, you know, I, I'm known as one of the go-to guys for pain and mouthwash release in the Rochester area. And the reason I say that is not to build myself up, but if if somebody is referred to me because of that experience, mm-hmm. there's placebo exactly. action right there, right? The, the placebo effect is built up by that doctor who said, go see Walt. He is, I think, the person that can help you. That's like, you're getting, you're getting a free ticket right there. Somebody boosted your potential outcome up, which... Yeah, the, the placebo evidence mm-hmm. says that that can mean something. Um, so, you know, how how can you discount that there's a placebo action going on with with every therapeutic engagement? There's a lot of ethical considerations with placebo that need to be taken into account, but you can't extract placebo from what we, you and I do for a living. So just embrace it. Appreciate the insight. I like that. Anything else you want to wrap about, sir? I think that's good for today. I, I'm always happy to come back because you, as you can hear, I have no problem chatting for, uh, for, um, endless periods of time about, uh, yeah, for sure. I love this as a, as an introduction to our audience about you and about what you're all about. And that way, next time we have you on, you know, we can get into something a little bit deeper, but yeah, I, I truly enjoyed this morning. Thank you very much. So, great. Yeah. So thank, make sure oh, you guys you for uh, check out the uh, Walt's website. You want to give them the website uh, another time, and uh, you can also sure the easiest way give to them yeah. some information on how they can get into contact with you if they if they want to. Absolutely. The easiest way to get to my website is my name www.waltfritz.com. You can access the website, the seminar listings, you know, all the class details, as well as the all important blog where all of us that <laughs> think we have something to someone something to say kind of put all of our our ramblings and musings, right? But the blog is there as well. So uh, I have a YouTube channel with, um, you know, so a, a bit of instructional type of work there, bits and snippets, et cetera, as well as an interesting side channel on self-treatment. Um, primarily right now, it's self-treatment for the upper body, neck, voice, and swallowing type of a patient clientele. But how to integrate um, that into your practice. And I kind of use those with my patients and just kind of, share the link with them. And I know a lot of other therapists have done so as well in terms of the shareability of YouTube videos. So 
Um, lots of ways to access me. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram and uh, and all over the place. It's hard to right uh, hopefully hard to miss me. Yeah. So, thanks, thanks for again, thanks Mark. for hanging. And you know what? Hopefully we will uh, have a face to face when you're in Toronto. We don't have to do it from opposite sides of a screen. Looks good. Love all to right. have you. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot. Right. You guys have been listening to two massage therapists in a microphone. My name is Mark hanging out with Walt Fritz talking about some myofascial release. Peace.